Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Right. Imagine you are out walking on the heath and just in front of you on the ground you see a watch well your first instinct is that well someone's dropped their watch maybe i should hand it in or maybe i should keep it but buried deep in your subconscious there's another thought you naturally assume that that watch had a designer all the bits of that watch the casing the mechanism the strap all working together to give it its intended purpose and I think about the human eye. It's like a sophisticated piece of machinery, different components working together. So just as you know that any watch you happen to come across had a designer, you ought to recognise that the human eye must have had a designer too. And clearly, something as brilliant as the eye, it must have been the supremely intelligent eye designer known as God. Anyway, that was the argument from design of the 18th century clergyman called William Paley, who wanted to prove the existence of God. But we now know, thanks to Charles Darwin and others, that this sense of design in the natural world is in fact a powerful illusion. Natural selection is the process that gives nature the illusion of design. And it took human beings a long time to figure it out. The only true designers in the real design sense, designers with forethought and intention are us humans and so now imagine you're on the heath and in front of you is a huge statue of some kind of deity you'd naturally start to wonder which human had come up with that and that is the question on today's podcast who invented god Okay, now, if God invented heaven and earth, who invented God? Well, the God of Abraham, of Christianity, Islam, Judaism, known as Yahweh, was once just a lowly storm deity with black eyeliner and a pierced ear. A bit like Philoki, I was thinking, actually, from Human League. Actually, no, more like, because he was also hyper-masculine, apparently, so maybe more like Arnold Schwarzenegger in Conan the Barbarian. Anyway, something happened that elevated him, promoted him into the ethereal, bodiless, invisible, sky-dwelling, all-powerful, capricious, mono-god that we know today. 
to explain how gods are invented in the first place and how they evolve and how and why all the other gods seem to have vanished. We've got biblical historian and all-round good egg, Francesca Stavrakopoulou, with us on the show today. Hey, hello. Hey, Dallas. How are you? Good, thanks. Yeah, I like your intro. I should introduce you a little bit for those, I'm sure most people know who you are, but you're obviously a, you're a young earth creationist. You believe in the, lit- <laughs> you believe in the literal word of God as the Bible, as truth. <laughs> <laughs> You don't do that. You're a hist- you're a bit you're it's one of those things that I, you must get I'm sorry because you must get really bored by everyone always going but you study the Bible but you're not a Christian. How does that? It's a bit like saying people always to me they always say oh but you're interested in science but you're not a scientist. How does that work? And it's like really annoying. Yeah, like when people say oh you know but you study you're a historian and you focus on you know 1940s Germany and yet you're not a Nazi. Like how yeah. weird is that, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm a biblical a scholar. No, I absolutely am not. <laughs> but like, I'm a biblical scholar, which basically means that um, I'm not reading these ancient texts from a confessional perspective, although some of my academic colleagues do, whether from a Jewish perspective or a Christian mm. perspective. But I'm, yeah, I'm an atheist, always have been, always will be. But I've always been really fascinated by the Bible. Um, Me too. You know, this is a this is a collection of ancient literature that's had like a profound effect <laughs> on the planet. Yeah. You know, both in terms of socially and culturally, but also, you know, environmentally. There are various sorts of ways in which we have raped and pillaged the earth because some people read certain texts in the Bible to say that that's what God wants us to do. So do you know what I mean? It's had a big impact. Yeah, I think it's what God wants us to do. Well, yeah. But I look at the ancient societies and cultures that gave rise to these texts from a historical, sort of sociological, anthropological point of view. Thank you. And it's, your book's excellent, by the way. I read it when it came out a, a while ago. And it's called God and Anatomy. And it is an anatomy. You look at, you're looking at the physical body of God and you end with an autopsy and you look at from the, well, from the feet up. And it's excellent. I've got to say, actually, I, I'm an atheist as well. I don't think I'd be able to function in life like, if I actually believed in God. Like, I don't understand how you can believe in God. And not that I've got a problem with anyone believing in God. I'm just totally fine. But I don't understand how you can believe in God and not... I'd be, like, crying if I sort of left the house, knowing that there was, like, a supernatural security camera in the sky, kind of knowing, all-knowing, all-seeing. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. How can, yeah. Like, it's, if I thought ghosts were real or Loch Ness monsters were real, for the same reason, I wouldn't be able to function in life. I'd just be, like, hiding. That's really interesting that you say that, that idea of this kind of big security camera in the sky, because in some ways, that's kind of what God, you know, this God has become today. It's this idea that there's this kind of very remote kind of all-seeing eye that looks down on us and knows exactly what we're, not just what we're doing, but what we're thinking. And is a God, therefore, who can punish us or reward us for our behaviour. And that's like, that falls into a category that scholars refer to as the big gods theory. It's the other, in other words, this idea about this kind of scrutinizing deity that kind of knows what you're thinking and has this kind of moral compass that can, and can therefore punish you or reward you for your behavior and for who you are. But that's, that's quite, it's not the way that gods were always understood to be. So some people argue that this notion of a Mm. big God, the kind of security camera God, only emerges when you've got very complex societies because you need some kind of, exterior moral persecutor yeah. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> to hold diverse communities to account to ensure that they behave in certain ways that enable cooperation and well-being and flourishing I mean but that's one theory um but yeah gods weren't normally they weren't like that 
in many ancient contexts. No, well, that's the thing. And the, certainly the god that you, t- you that you write about isn't like that. He is much more the, the, the Conan the Barbarian god. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> He's very loving as well. Yeah. I mean, he can be very, very tender and caring and loving as well. Like he, he can be, I think for some of these ancient societies, like it was almost like he kind of functioned almost like a kind of, a member of the extended family, mm. the kind of like the paternal kind of, you know, semi kind of retired grandpa who will kind of, you know, look after you in that sense. <laughs> Dodgy uncle. Um, yeah, yeah, sometimes too. Um, actually, yes, quite a lot sometimes. Um, <laughs> but that idea that we've got today, like so primarily the God of Christianity and Judaism and Islam, obviously in Islam, he's not known as Yahweh, he's Allah. Um, yeah. But but that idea of this kind of big god up in the sky the security camera kind of god that that is a relatively from my perspective as an ancient historian that's a relatively modern invention okay he's stripped of his body kind of due to various philosophical positions it's really interesting I, i'm going to come back to the stripping of the body because i'm absolutely fascinated by this by, by this idea of god once having a body and then bits of him just suddenly dropping off until there was nothing left until he was just this kind of idea mm. sort of left but before we get to because this is this is a podcast about inventions yeah and sort of technology and i kind of well first of all i kind of think god's kind of the ultimate technology if you suppose there is a god that can kind of build planets and make universes and that kind of stuff so that's pretty interesting mm. but also i'm interested in the origins of things so is there i mean is there such a thing I mean, is there such a thing as kind of God 1.0, like kind of Windows 1.0, but sort of the, is it, was there a kind of a first God? And like, why did humans, you know, I'm starting with the premise that God has created in our image, if you like. So is there a inherent human impulse to come up with supernatural agencies? I think there probably is. And I think it's probably because we're such a highly social species that we have the ability And I think we always have done as a species, we've got this ability to imagine the otherworldly and to have relationships, social relationships with these imagined beings or forces or whatever. Mm. So, you know, um, take, for example, this is one of my favourite examples. Take, for example, elephants. Now, we, you know, there's been all sorts of work done on elephant society and particularly elephants' responses to the remains of dead elephants. So I'm not talking about a fresh elephant corpse i'm talking about the dried up disarticulated bones of an elephant a dead elephant you know and it's been documented on camera and you know various scientific studies that a family of elephants um if they come across this kind of jumble of bones they will respond in quite extraordinary ways almost some people almost use the language of ritual to describe the ways in which they respond to these bones it's as if they recognize that this was once an elephant. This was once a living elephant. So people talk about this as kind of mortuary rituals where they kind of gather around the bones and they spend a lot of time using their trunks to kind of smell and caress and sort of rearrange the bones a bit. They sort of stand very close together in groups and they kind of rub their faces and their tusks on each other. And they sort of almost like make this change in their, the sounds that they make. And then gradually, gradually they'll move off. But what these elephants seem to be doing is recognising a kind of social relationship with these bones and kind of manifesting that. And almost as if they're giving, attributing some kind of social relationship to this dead, to these bones, basically. And if they can imagine... Ancestor worship. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think, you know, there are all sorts of theories about how do we, you know, what is it about humans? Are we, is it in our DNA to have these kind, to imagine otherworldly beings? And I think the ways that human species from the earliest times have responded to their dead we don't just kind of abandon the bodies of our dead and our and very ancient ancestors didn't do this we 
we socialise the remains of our dead. In other words, we kind of will perform certain sorts of mortuary rituals. We recognise an ongoing relationship with that once living, now dead member of our community. And I think that's what elephants are doing in some ways. And so in to that extent, it does suggest that we can imagine ongoing relationships with things that, you know, don't exist anymore or do not exist. We've always had this obsession with surviving our death, this mm. idea that there is some kind of afterlife. and But that's a massive kind of cognitive shift. The, first of all, you have to know that you're going to die and then try and imagine, because we can't really deal with the, the idea of dying, mm. we have to kind of come up with stories that kind of soft cushion the blow i don't know i mean there's all i've read a lot various things from evolutionary biologists who talk about kind of where that instinct comes from and have you heard you know that thing where you know cavemen cave women in the long grass and the grass moves now it could be just the wind or it could be a saber-toothed tiger so if you run away and it was just the wind well there's nothing lost but if you ran away and it was a saber-toothed tiger then you've saved your life but if you didn't run away you get eaten so the people who run away their genes propagate and so that idea of superstition or sort of false drivers I don't know if that's if that's bollocks or not but maybe it is I I mean from a cognitive science of religion perspective that is one kind of theory I think it's quite problematic because it assumes that imagining a supernatural or otherworldly being depends on the idea of fear so it goes back to that idea we were talking about about the big camera in the sky that's got this moral compass and then knows what you're thinking or knows what you're doing and will judge you Mm. punish you or or kind of reward Mm. you and I think that's quite I think that's quite problematic it's imposing all sorts of our own assumptions onto very very distant past communities and also kind of oversimplifies what religion is but some cognitive science of religion people have suggested that actually what we see in the development of babies and children, you know, like playing peekaboo. At what point, you yes. know, does a baby understand that covering your eyes and uncovering your eyes in peekaboo, do they still know that you're there? If you leave a room, does a child think that you've ceased to exist? <laughs> well, that's it. But that gets into that idea of theory of mind, that, that idea yeah. of like you have, you know, you are self-aware and you can project your self-awareness on other things. So I'm, I'm looking at you and I know that, even though I don't know exactly what you're thinking, I know that you are thinking. Yeah, I think you're thinking. I'm always but do you know thinking. what I mean? So, but again, it seems to be quite sort of higher primates and I guess maybe pachyderms, elephants and, and yeah, have, so like, have that. Exactly. So similarly, you know, like some of these studies with elephants and their mortuary rituals. So we've seen similar, you know, we've got similar evidence of chimpanzee communities doing very similar sorts of things. So I think it's something about highly social species have the ability yes. to imagine yeah. otherworldly beings and to have social relationships with these imaginary beings if you like good okay we've take that so my question is um god 1.0 do we have any evidence and this may be outside your remit do we have any evidence of god's first appearing is there like kind of god or gods 1.0 pre yahweh oh yeah pre yahweh yeah i mean yahweh's a relatively kind of he's the new kid on the block in the ancient world in a lot of ways you know what i mean like he's yeah so before yahweh we've got evidence dating back to i mean you know just being very sort of conservative about it I mean certainly from at least 3000 BCE so before the common era you've got very highly developed social networks of gods and goddesses in Mesopotamian cities and so what the places that we now associate primarily with Iraq in those areas you've got temples and sacrifices and offerings being made to various deities and these deities you know what we know from the literature that these communities um, produced you know over the course of you know from at least sort of 3000 
BCE is when we when we could see these highly complex archaeological remains of temples and various other things. But gradually, as literature began to emerge, as writing and literature began to emerge, so you've got these stories about a god who is particularly associated with the sky and another deity who's particularly associated with this kind of watery kind of chaos. And it's the result of these two deities interacting that you kind of get the creation of the heavenly realm, the earthly realm and the underworld, for example, and or the sea. This is a really dumb question, I'm sure. But what is it about the sky that sort of inspires gods? I think because we are our bodies, right? So this whole division between mind and body, um, as far as I'm concerned, is bollocks to a certain extent. And um, we are our bodies and we orientate not just our the worlds in which we live and, you know, our experiential worlds with our bodies, but we also orientate our imaginations with our bodies too. And so like what we tend to spend a lot of time, you know, our heads are right at the top of our bodies, if you like. A lot of our main sensory organs and features are at the tops of our bodies and our heads and our faces. And so I think that's why we tend to orientate to the sky. When I asked you when was the first god, you 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 said it was a kind of really a pantheon of gods. There were lots of gods. And when did we go from pantheism having lots of gods, you know, the Greeks and the Romans had gods for everything, to sort of suddenly all those gods are dying off. And now we've only got one god, Yahweh, this the god, that, you know, the Abrahamic god. Like what happened to all the other gods? Why do we now only have one god? Long story short, people used to believe both that the gods were networked into kind of these heavenly households or whatever, and they had various portfolios. Of, and they of had special jobs. Each know. one had a job, you know, Yeah, plumbing, special jobs. Whatever. So like, you know, I'm responsible for plumbing, death, yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of fertility, magic, you know, magic. decorating. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But these gods were understood to have bodies quite often, you know, that they, they were understood to be visually to have a kind of a visual correspondence to humans mm. um which kind of elevates the status of humans that we're more special than you know cats or cows or whatever because we have a much closer visual correspondence to these deities but because these deities were often understood to be like human shape we, we kind of humans used to make images of them and like cult statues so what's often the very pejorative term that we find in religious and theological writing is idols they're not idols these are cult statues so in other words ritual statues that didn't just symbolize the deity they manifested the deity the deity was was kind of was identified with in it yeah with the with the cult statue but you gradually get within so we're talking primarily about if we're talking about the emergence of monotheism in other words like so not polytheism or pantheism but monotheism one of the ways in which monotheism emerged and we're talking around about the 6th to the 5th century BCE in this little in the territory that we now identify with Israel, Palestine, Jordan, it was a kind of a rejection of the idea that other people's gods and other deities within your own network were just man-made idols. They couldn't do anything. You know, they had eyes, but they couldn't see. They had feet, but they couldn't walk. You know, they had noses, but they couldn't smell or breathe. By contrast, this particular group of Yahweh worshippers, because that's who we're talking about, said our God's body is perfectly, is not, you know, disabled, to use air quotes. He has eyes and he can see. He has a nose and he can breathe. He has a mouth and he can speak. And it was a way of trying to prioritise the worship of their particular patron deity over and against the deities of all these foreign peoples, many of whom are these big imperial powers that are basically suppressed them and kind of like locked them into these awful political systems for centuries and centuries, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, you know, so it was... It was partly political. That's really interesting. So for political reasons, we kind of, like we like we sort of vote out politicians. We kind of just got rid of all, all their gods. Yeah. And so like, so Yahweh himself, so the God of the Bible, so the, the Bible as in 
We've got the Hebrew Bible, which is what Christians call the Old Testament. In Judaism, it's known as Tanakh. The Hebrew Bible are our earliest kinds of literature about this kind of monotheistic deity. But the people, and you know, Yahweh is this particular deity. He was the deity of the little ancient Iron Age kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And he was once, you know, networked into one of these pantheons. He was understood to have had a dad, the god Ale. He had a wife, the goddess Asherah. But gradually in the Iron Age, and then sort of really in around the 6th century or the 5th century BCE, certain intelligentsia, certain intellectuals started to say that, no, Yahweh was the only all-powerful God. He took on those portfolios, all those jobs of other deities, and they gradually got rid of all these others. But why? Was there a reason? Partly because in the 6th century BCE, the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, which was the capital of the little kingdom of Judah, and a lot of their intelligentsia and elites were exiled to Mesopotamia. How can this happen? This meant that their god either was weak and he had been defeated by the Babylonian gods and he was the patron deity of their statehood, basically. So it either meant that their god was weak or it meant that their god had deliberately enabled the Babylonians to do this. And if he deliberately enabled them to do this, he must have some control over these foreign gods. And if he's got control over these foreign gods, he must have some kind of international universal reach. And if he's got this international universal reach, therefore he must be in control of the whole world. If he's in control of the whole world, he must have made the whole world. Therefore, he is the creator God. He is God 1.0. So how long did that happen? Like, did somebody somebody say, right, all those other gods no longer... Was it on, like, on a Wednesday? They'd sort of decided, right, those... <laughs> and as from Thursday... No, it took a really long time. I mean, we're talking centuries. So the texts that we have in the Hebrew Bible are... You know, they're the, they're the literature of a particular elite groups. They're not representative of the whole, po- you know, yeah. of the whole populations. And so, you know, most people just carried on just doing what they always did. But it's just that these texts have become really authoritative because that's the way in which gradually, once you've got rid of the occult statues of your gods, once you've got rid of, you know, temples were destroyed. You know, Yahweh's temples were destroyed by the Babylonians. And then later on, much, much later on, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed again by the Romans, never to be rebuilt. So when you don't have temples and places in which you say your deity dwells, then you turn to sacred texts that you say your deity has either given you or has instructed you to write or to record and to circulate. And so those texts, these scrolls almost become, they replace little cult statues. These are the manifestations of divine presence now, not cult statues. And, you know, obviously one of the commandments is you shall not make images. Was that, yeah. Does that come from that? It's like, no, okay, yeah, no more. because people, that's exactly what they did. And so that's why that commandment, which looks to be a lot of scholars. It's a bit of a rubbish one, I think, out of all of them. I'm like, yeah. Well, I know, because I think, you know, these things are quite fun more than anything else. Do you know what I mean? What yeah, exactly? and we like yeah, objects. Yeah. Humans really like we having do. objects. But um, yeah, that commandment about you shall not have cult images looks to be a slightly later insertion into earlier forms of the Ten Commandments in which he was said, look, don't, you know, you shall not worship other gods, just me. So yeah, you only ban people from doing something because they're doing it. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Sing, muses. Sing to me a history of Olympus and the deathless gods who govern earth, sea, and sky. That is Zeus's command. It's the Ancients from History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and every month on the podcast, we're taking a deep dive into the Olympian gods. None of them are as simple or as single-faceted as we've kind of reduced them to in our heads when we think about the gods of the Pantheon who do one thing each. With world-leading experts, we'll be telling the dramatic story of who they are. Aphrodite was the goddess of love and sex and passion and specifically she was considered often to be love itself. Their myths and their meanings. Hephaestus was already there and that he split Zeus's head with an axe in order to liberate Athena from Zeus's head. And how they've influenced the course of history. Imagine ourselves back in the footsteps of people who are trying to explain and understand a world around them. A world which is not fair or just. That gets us into absolute key facet of how to understand the ancient Greek gods, which is that they are not good people. Join us as we explore some of the most fascinating deities history has ever known. Listen and follow on the ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. I mentioned at the beginning that Yahweh, or the, the, the sort of Abrahamic god, was a, started off as a kind of minor storm deity. Yeah. You've sort of outlined how, why, the sort of political reasons why the, the other pantheon of gods sort of faded away. And, and sort of he was elevated. But how did he lose his body? Well, first of all, talk, talk about his body, because his body is what you talk about in the, in the book. And I mentioned a description at the beginning of he was sort of hyper-masculine and wore eyeliner. Yes, as a storm deity, I mean, so we think, you know, we, we can't know for sure, but scholars are generally agreed that we think that this particular deity Yahweh was like any other storm deity across ancient southwest Asia so that meant that he was kind of hyper hyper masculine so and even very female deities who were storm gods were also quite masculine why storm what do you mean by when you say storm deity what are we talking about oh so a storm god so basically he's a warrior god and as a warrior god so he fights on behalf of his worshippers but as a warrior god his weapons are thunder, nice. lightning, rain clouds, hailstorms, all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of like a weather god, but not not a benevolent weather god. Like kind of, he's hardcore, you know, he's absolutely ferocious. So he starts off as a, as a kind of a weather god, as a storm god. 
And he looks to be, we've got little bits of ancient poetry in these texts that suggest that he was originally one of a number of kind of second tier deities. He was the son of a high god, Ale, whose name simply means deity. Ale had a, a consort, a goddess wife, and Yahweh was probably one of their children, if you like. But then gradually, within this particular territory, so the southern Levant, what we identify now as modern day Israel, Palestine, Jordan, he took on the roles of the high god, like his father, Ael. Ael was kind of, you know, he was the creator god. He was the, the father god. And gradually Yahweh takes on these roles and takes on the roles and functions of, of this god in various temples. And because this is about the emergence also of what we might call, not unproblematically, but what we might call statehood. So Yahweh also becomes the patron deity, not just of a particular people and place, but of the particular ruling families. A bit like the kind of Kim Jong-un and Kim Jong-il. It sounds quite North Korean. <laughs> it I is, don't mean it to is be... kind of. because And yeah, and that link between the military power of these ruling political families and the military might of this warrior god were very closely linked. You know, and that's why these kings could call themselves the son of God. We yeah, find that in the, Hebrew, in the Hebrew Bible. So like, it's, it's this, it's a kind of political, cultural prioritization of Yahweh over all other deities and that's where we get the beginning and he takes on the roles and functions of a lot of other gods in the pantheon and goddesses so he becomes like the god who's responsible for the safe delivery of children and that kind of thing so gradually gradually he takes on all their roles and, and they become redundant which is a real shame in a lot of ways it is a shame because yeah. I kind of I'm like they had some good stuff going on yeah. I, I, Francesca I've got to tell you something you're such a good writer and I'm not just saying that to blow smoke up your backside. <laughs> you, honestly, you're really good. Thank you. You've got such an elegant way of writing. And in your book, your description of Yahweh, in, in the end, when you talk about the autopsy, which is which is just so fascinating. Can I read a bit? Yeah, of course. Just because it's so nice. I Just your description so good. You write, if it were the corpse of the biblical God laid out on a slab before us, what would we see? A supersized human-shaped body with male features and shining ruddy red skin tinged with the smell of rain clouds and incense. His broad legs suggest he was accustomed not only to striding, leaping and marching, but sitting and standing, resolutely stiff, posing like a ceremonial statue. His biceps bulge. His forearms are as hard as iron. There are faint indentations around his big toes, left by thonged sandals. Beneath his toenails, there are traces of human blood, as though he had been trampling on broken bodies, while the remnants of fragrant grass around his ankles suggest strolls through a verdant garden. It goes on. It's beautiful. It's great. It's poetry. It's wonderful. Oh, thank you. I could, I could go on and on. That, that, that page, is. I, I've read it so many times because it's, it's just lovely. Yeah. Thank you. I think I write more elegantly than I speak. Well, at least that's what my mum says. <laughs> well, I think you speak very elegantly as well, but your writing is, is, is superb. So, okay, but we've got, you paint this beautiful picture of, of, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Conan the Barbarian, slash Phil Oakey from the Human League. <laughs> Why did he just take us through the, the progression or the evolution of where, where he's lost his body? So he just becomes this amorphous thing. Yeah. So as a part of Yahweh taking over the roles and functions of other gods, including his own father, the god Ale. Ale had, you know, a long white beard. That's, like, you know, it showed his yeah. age. Proper so gold. this kind of black-haired, kind of red-skinned, eyelinered kind of, 
quite an attractive masculine deity, gradually takes on the kind of becomes older. He becomes the, the elder statesman, if you like, of the heavens with this white beard. And that kind of model and his fathership of the cosmos is more emphasised. And then obviously, you know, Christianity started as a minor Jewish cult. And within Christianity, it was this kind of image of this kind of great father God, the great patriarch, that kind of persisted. But Christians, Christians had a problem in the sense that one of the things that Jesus is supposed to have said in the Gospels is that he commands them to baptise in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. So people think that he, you know, is he the Son of God? Okay, that makes sense. But if he's the Son of God, does that mean that he's the same or he's distinct from God the Father, you know, the Father God? And who is this Holy Spirit? (laughs) Are there three gods? You know, so because of this kind of complication... Nobody really knew what he meant when he said baptise in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Are these three deities or are they one? And so in the early centuries of Christianity, they're trying their damnedest to say, to try and define the nature of God. Is God three? Is God divisible? Is he changeable? Are these three different deities? And in the course of arguing all of this, they had to come down to the idea and they were drawing on platonic philosophies. So sort of a lot of neo-platonic philosophies that basically argued that the that the divine has to be completely and wholly other to anything in the universe. So it had, it can't be changeable. It can't be divided into parts. It can't be material. That's what the divine is. It has to be completely and wholly other to anything in, in the universe. And the universe is material, changeable, divisible, da, da, da. So for, for the divine to be truly divine, it can't be any of those things. So they had to argue that God, the Christian God, is basically has no body can't because a body can be divided into parts and it's material. Um, and they had to argue that God was both three in one. Now, all of those arguments are very complicated and f- philosophically um, very convoluted. But essentially, they had to declare that God couldn't have a body. Also, they had to declare this because the only way in which God could have a body is by becoming incarnate, enfleshed, in other words, that's what the word means, in the body of Jesus, because he's the one that was born and lived and died. You know, so he's the hero of the Christian story. So Jesus has to have like the monopoly on the whole divine body thing. Basically, it's a big semantic, it's a big semantic nightmare is the reason why he lost his body. It's like, oh, crikey, this whole three in one thing, we've really screwed this up. Hang on. Yeah, within Christianity. And it was a way of saying, We've got a problem because we've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son became, you know, had a body in the person of Jesus. What does that, you know, how? So they're trying to basically come up with a solution to a problem that is, you know, how do you uphold certain things that are written in the Gospels and written in your on our sacred texts, and yet at the same time deny that that we are polytheists by worshiping God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's a bit of a fudge. It's a bit like, well, I suppose it's a bit like an in high energy particle physics where a particle can be a wave and a particle at the same time yeah you see that just i just i have no idea what you're talking about there well me neither really i I, well people tell me you know physicists tell me it's like well it's a a photon can be a wave and you know the twin slit experiment which it's basically got it's basically kind of beyond our comprehension but i just think it's a bit of a shame that because it's beyond our comprehension we have to sort of okay we does he doesn't have a body then but i think that's basically i mean the point is is that and this, you know, this happens within early Christianity in the first few hundred years. So by about the kind of the, the fourth, fifth centuries, people are starting to think, OK, God doesn't have a body. 
you know, and it's happening at the same time, you know, among Jewish communities who are equally thinking similar things about their version of God. And it's because of, primarily because of this influence of certain philosophical, Greek philosophical positions, which were very influential, that said the divine cannot be anything like our world, our universe. The divine has to be completely and wholly other. So it has to be immaterial. It has to be incorporeal. It has to be invisible. It has to be indivisible. And it's that kind of philosophical position that means that people reshaped, reinterpreted their religious traditions and and customs. Well, presumably we're still reinterpreting our religious customs and and traditions and thoughts about it. I mean, for example, I I wonder the the conversations that you have within your world. Obviously, you're you're a biblical, you're a historian. When you talk to other biblical scholars who do have faith or Christians or, or what have you, how do you square that? I mean, I'm looking at the back of your book, for example. Rowan Williams, Archbishop of Canterbury, former, calls your book lively. Dot, dot, dot. And, I'm, <laughs> and I'm just kind of wondering because, like, I read, I read your book, and it was like it's, it makes perfect sense. I totally get the historical and the political and and the kind of metaphorical idea. And I'm just wondering, like, when Rowan Williams read it, what did he? Could he not see what? Why didn't he see what I see? I think. I mean, I can't speak for Rowan Williams, obviously. I mean, he wrote a very generous review of my book in the sense that you know he spent the first half saying this is fantastic piece of scholarship it's you know da 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 but then the second half was but that's not what faith is about and so and I think that's the big difference the big difference is that faith has become a very personal thing and so you know a lot of within my field a lot of scholars are Jewish or Christian primarily but good scholarship is good scholarship. I think for a lot of scholars, you can leave your faith, you know, at the door when you're doing the scholarship. You can say, I understand that the kind of anthropological, social, cultural shifts that have occurred that give rise to this particular construct of God. However, some of these scholars say, however, I believe that this God is true. And they have various strategies for dealing with that. It may be that they say what we've got here, you know, God is such an incredible creator that he has given us these abilities to unpick the the evolution if you like and I don't like that word but the evolution of religious experience and understanding some say these texts and these practices are written in this way so that it can help humans to understand only a little bit of God because God is essentially incomprehensible humans cannot possibly understand it that's how big God is and so they have their own strategies for dealing with it (laughs) Just think of God as a size. Like, what's the biggest God you've driven? What's yeah. your favourite colour God? XXXL. <laughs> that, but that brings me back to my thing. I, you know, I think when I was younger, I used to kind of believe in God without really thinking about it because I had that sense of otherness. Like we talked about earlier, that sense of agency beyond. And I still have it in a way. You know, I still kind of salute magpies and touch wood and don't walk under ladders which I kind of think is a similar kind of, maybe comes from the same kind of thing. But it does get going back to that point. Like if I did believe in this all-seeing giant-sized God, I would be freaking out all the time because I can't compartmentalize. It would change the way I see the world about everything. That's what I don't understand. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. We are really culturally, you know, we are our bodies. And I think we are very much products of our own particular cultures and societies. So the ways that ancient peoples understood the otherworldly, if you like, was so different from us. They understood their bodies differently. They were different. And I think in the future, the way that people understand God may well change even yeah. more, particularly, you know, the whole idea of kind of life on... I mean, what to, I mean, this is one of the things that I, I often think about. What do religious people do when they say, you know, is for God, you know, what's God's relationship with 
other life in the universe. Martians. Yeah. And we will, we, you know, there's a good chance we will find life in the, in the universe. Yeah. Maybe not complex life, but even if we find simple life, it's still life. Yeah. If we, you know, if we colonise Mars in a kind of Elon Muskian way, God help us. Yeah. Would religion develop naturally if we, over time, do you think, from a standing start? Yeah, quite probably. And I, and I think that's the thing. I think that it's because we are such a highly social species and we are so networked into, you know, we can't exist on our own as an individual. Like, it's like a giant, it's like a cosmic LinkedIn. Yeah, pretty much. But with those annoying emails as well. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh my God. Kind of thing. LinkedIn emails, like absolutely dry. I'm going to do a little, a little sub-series in my podcast called Things That Piss Dallas Off. One of which will be LinkedIn emails. <laughs> but actually, it's funny. Here's the thing. I don't believe in a God, but I, I, I really like going to church. I like... The, I, I like being in church. I like taking communion. I think the idea of taking communion, and even though, you know, this idea of transubstantiation is so alien and no more sensible or no more real, in inverted commas, than Scientology or anything else. But there is, I do, I feel, I like it. I understand the profundity of it and it does something to you. I get it. I think that's the thing. I think we also really like rituals and we also really like magic. I and I don't magic. mean magic in a pejorative sense. I just mean we like the mysterious mm. and rituals are a way to access in some ways the, the religious rituals do. They, they give you access, a glimpse of mysteries, you know, kind of like the mysterious, the magical. And, you know, the thing about transubstantiation is, you know, there's the ultimate kind of, you know, God has a body and here's yes. his blood and here is his flesh. And I, you know, obviously I'm an atheist, but I think if you're going to do religion, do it, do it. like do it yeah, properly. Totally. Like, you know, yeah. don't, you know, don't go for decaffeinated kind of diet Coke versions. Like totally. just do I'm the kind you. of full fat, full fat ritual. I am totally with you on that one. Yeah, that that, that makes sense. I think we should probably leave it there. We're sort of, I'm sort of running out of time. I was well, just very briefly, just to finish off, just tell us what you're, what you're up to at the moment and where your interests lie post your wonderful book on the anatomy of God? Well, I'm currently, I mean, obviously, I'm, my day job is as a professor at a university. So I'm currently in a stack of marking at the moment, oh, which is not crikey. particularly exciting. But yeah, apart from that, I'm thinking more about the relationship between animal religion, if you like, and our religions. And I'm sort of exploring that a little bit more. Francesca, it's an absolute pleasure. And thank you very much for talking to us about the invention of God. We don't know quite who invented it, but a long time ago and it wasn't Thomas Edison as I always say definitely wasn't him <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much come out come on the show again and talk about other other inventions <laughs> thank you yeah I'd love to <laughs> invention of other gods <laughs> that's it thank you very much for listening I hope you enjoyed this particular episode I certainly did uh, Francesca's book is brilliant by the way I thoroughly recommend it don't forget if you are enjoying the show please pass on the message tell your friends and family about it and don't forget to get in touch if you've got a suggestion for a topic you'd like us to cover an idea you would like us to explore you can email us as patented at historyhit.com or you can pester me on social media 
While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.